Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. It's on page 1002 in the church Bible, Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 10. Hebrews 2 verse 10. Let's hear the Word of God. For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise." And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the Word of God. Well, there was a time when I wasn't in Philadelphia, and uh, at that time I had a bit of a life. And it may come as a surprise to you. And uh, I, I, I had a friend in London who was one, of the, is, was one of the chief justices in the United Kingdom, and he often had to sit in the high court and, and adjudicate over very, very high-profile celebrity cases that attracted the media nationally and internationally. And he and I did not share that particular job, but we did share the fact that neither of our wives were particularly interested in Shakespeare. I think both of them are scientists and therefore have absolutely no interest in any literature or uh, culture whatsoever. Anyway, uh, (laughs) I'm in for a rough time later on, as you can imagine. Uh, But so often he and I would repair from time to time uh, to have a, a meal out together and then from there to the Globe theater in London to watch a Shakespeare play. I was thinking of that this morning. We, we used to have great, great fun, except that in the Globe Theater, the seats are made of wood to kind of replicate the old way it was. Uh, but as I was thinking about that and thinking about the sermon this morning, I remembered studying when I was at college uh, a number of Shakespeare plays. The one that stands out in my mind, of course, is Hamlet. And this particular quotation, which does have relevance, in case you're wondering what this is all about, to the sermon, we'll get there in the end. This particular quotation is one that I love very much, where Hamlet says, I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, foregone all custom of exercises, and indeed all it, it goes heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a, a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why it appears no other thing to me than a foul, pestilent congregation of vapors. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, 
how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights me not, <laughs> nor, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so. The end. It's good to recite it in the language it was originally written in, English, <laughs> and for you to hear it firsthand. And for those who are offended, we have a safe space afterwards with coloring books <laughs> that you can repair to. But as I was thinking of that quotation, there's Shakespeare's description of man. What a profound description it is. And it highlights, it highlights to me, and I hope to all of us this morning, what a remarkable, what a wonderful, what a transcendent thing it is when we read Scripture to discover the emphasis that we've been, that we've been learning from this great second chapter of Hebrews, that it was, in the language of verse 10, fitting that it became God to make Jesus, through His sufferings, perfectly qualified to be the Savior of His people. He has been describing how it is that this, this eternal one, the Son of God, who is described in chapter 1, has for a little while been made lower than the angels. He has entered our sphere as one of us. He has described how this one in this lowly sphere of humanity has been exposed to suffering just as we are, and that He tasted death just as we will do uh, ourselves in our lives. And it is a remarkable thing, isn't it, that, that the Son of God should become the Son of Man. And it's with that background in mind, then, that we come this morning to look at verse 11 of chapter 2, in which this theme is furthered, advanced by the author of of this, of this epistle. He says this, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And he's talking, he's reflecting on the, the God-man, uh, the fact that here is one who is both God and man, one who is truly God but also truly man with our flesh. And he's reflecting here in verse 11 and following on his superiority his superiority over us, his solidarity with us, and his suitability to be our Savior. Well, look at those three things together. First of all, his superiority. He is able to be our Savior, for he is able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Look at the text. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. He's making a distinction between the one who does this one thing, sanctifies, and the rest who are the sanctified. Now, what does the word sanctify mean? Well, it means to make holy. Holy is one of the great biblical words. It comes from a root meaning to cut. And uh, we use the word to cut or the phrase to cut in this way in English sometimes when we say about someone, they are a cut above the average. What we mean by that is there are the common plebs, you and I, and then there are these remarkable people who are a cut above the average. They are different. They're in a class of their own, we might say. 
And there's a sense in which what holiness has to do with is everything about God that sets Him apart from us, that makes Him distinct from us. Everything about God that sets Him above us in glory and, and height and, and in His majesty. And everything about God that sets Him against us because we are unholy. And those elements are all involved in this idea of making holy. And the way in which it's introduced here, we have to say, I think, two things about the superiority of the Son of God in this matter that is raised for us here in verse 11. To sanctify is the work of the Trinity. If you look at the Old Testament, the God who is represented there is introduced to us in the New Testament as being the triune God. And in the Old Testament, He is called the Holy One of Israel. As the Holy One of Israel, He is separate from, He is above all, uh, all others, all other gods with a small g. He is transcendent over them and over all created reality. And when the God of Israel sanctifies something, what He does is He takes something in created reality, He sets it apart, and He dedicates it to Himself, the set-apart, separate God. And so when He uh, distinguishes, for example, among the days of our week, the seven days of our week, and He says about one day that we are to make the Sabbath day holy, he is telling us we are to put a circle around the Sabbath day in our diary. We are to put a fence around it and say, this day belongs to the Lord. It is the Lord's day. Not only that, but He chose to make Himself accessible to His people and present among His people in holy places. You have the tent or tabernacle. First of all, then you have the temple in Jerusalem. And the tent and the temple are both places that God set apart. He, he had them make it according to the pattern that He'd given on the mountain through Moses. They make it, and the people who work there are, are cleansed and, and set apart. The, the only work they do is temple work, tabernacle work. They're set apart so that they're exclusively for God at God's service. And there in the tent and the tabernacle, God the Lord who is holy and inaccessible by His nature makes Himself accessible to His people. And when God chooses Israel out of the world, out of the nations, when He calls Israel to Himself, God puts a ring around Israel and says concerning Israel, you are my people. I am your God. That's what makes you different from everyone else in the world. So, to sanctify is the work of the triune God. But here we're being taught in verse 11 of chapter 2 that to sanctify is the work of the mediator. These words, he who sanctifies, reflect Old Testament language. I am the Lord, your God, who sanctifies you. That is said repeatedly in the Old Testament. But here the reference is very clearly in the context to Jesus. He has already been identified in chapter 1 that He shares the identity of the Holy One of Israel. 
Later on in this book, we're told that He is also the one who consecrates or sanctifies His people to God by His blood. And if you look at the text, you will see that He is clearly distinguished from us. He is clearly distinguished here from everyone else in this room and everyone else on our planet today and for the the whole period of human history. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. That very language tells us of this radical gulf that exists between the Son of God on the one hand and those who are sons of God, children of God, on the other. He sanctifies, we are in need of being sanctified. There is an infinite distance between the Holy One of Israel and those whom He sets aside as holy for Himself here amongst creatures. And this infinite gap, this infinite gulf that exists between the Creator and the creature, between the Holy One and the unholy ones in need of being made holy, the one who bridges the gap is the mediator, the one who touches man on the one hand and God on the other, the one who is two natures, the God nature from all eternity, and now our human nature is the man Christ Jesus. He is the one mediator between God and man. He touches heaven and earth. He is the one that links humanity to deity in Himself. He is the great mediator. And He alone has the power to sanctify, to set apart something for God, for Himself. So in John 17, as he anticipates his arrest and then his trial and his crucifixion the next day in our place, he, in that great high priestly prayer, says to his Father, Father, for their sake, I sanctify myself. I I set myself aside now to be the sacrificial victim. I put myself now on the altar to take their place. I, I dedicate myself now to be the one to bear their sin and their guilt and to die for them and thereby to purchase their salvation. And so later in Hebrews, the writer can say that it's by the Father's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Or again in chapter 13, that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His blood. In other words, by dying for us, one of the things He achieves by dying for us is not only that He removes our guilt, but that He puts us to one side, and He puts a ring around us as His people and says to the world, these are mine. These belong to me. They have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, all the work that I did on their behalf applies to them. Therefore, they are able to stand in the presence of God. They have access into the presence of God. And the fact that Jesus has to sanctify us underscores our common pollution in the eyes of God, that we are by nature defiled and therefore separated from God. Now, we we don't like to think in that language today, and yet the New Testament doesn't allow us to shy away from it. Paul, writing to Titus, says this, for we ourselves, writing to Christians, were once foolish, disobedient, 
led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What is he saying? He's saying that by nature we are not holy. By nature, we do not naturally move towards God. By nature, we do not always love our neighbor. We do not love our enemy. We do not love one another. By nature, we withdraw from God out of guilt and rebellion. And here we're being told at the beginning of verse 11 here that it is the work of the mediator, the God-man in one person, the man Christ Jesus. It is the work of the mediator to reconcile people to God. He is the great sanctifier of the church. He is the one who sets His people aside for God. And He has to do that because God is holy, blisteringly holy. The Bible says He is of purer eyes than to behold evil. How can God even look on us without the blood of Christ, without the work of Christ on our behalf? It is His nature to be holy. It is our nature to be unholy. And it is the work of the mediator to make us fit for the presence of God. If nothing that defiles can ever enter the new Jerusalem in the new heaven and the new earth, then that defilement of my nature needs to be cleansed and washed away. And this is the story of the Bible. Sin came on all humanity through one man's sin. And now in the Lord Jesus, the second Adam, righteousness comes to us. We are clothed in righteousness. He puts His righteousness upon us. He credits His righteousness and purity to us so that we stand accepted in Him. We're also sanctified by Him. We're sanctified by the blood that He shed, which acts as a cleansing agent, as it were, washing us clean from our sin because the cost of our sinning, the cost of our disobedience has been dealt with by His obedience. Not only that, but He, he, he sanctifies us through the work of His Holy Spirit, which He puts into us, by which He begins the work of increasingly transforming our nature so that we are less and less defiled by behavior and more and more straightened out and like Him. He sanctifies His people in relation to Himself because His people are His body on earth. And it's unthinkable that the head should be holy and the body unholy, so He works in His church. There's that great passage we read sometimes at weddings, from uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she might be holy and without blemish. This is why we come to church. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we preach the Bible, because the Word of God has a cleansing, renewing, purifying influence upon us. You don't have to understand every word that's said. You don't have to understand the accent. You don't have to understand all the high theology behind some of the words we use. The Word does its own work. 
It washes us. It cleanses us. It overwhelms us. It kind of goes over our hearts and our consciences, and it cleans us up, and it makes us fit for the presence of God. The washing of water with the Word. The Word cleanses. And from heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. And the Son of God, as the Son of God, is the one who sanctifies and what makes us makes us ready for and prepared for the presence of God. But the text not only stresses his superiority, it secondly stresses his solidarity, because he shares our humanity. He shares our humanity. Already in verse 10, we've been introduced to this idea, the solidarity of believers with the pioneer of our salvation. For a little while made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, it was fitting that He should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. So, two things are now being assumed in verse 11. One is the superiority of Jesus as the Son of God, and the second is the solidarity of Jesus with us as a fellow human being. Look at the language again. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have wonderfully, have all one source, or all have one origin. J.B. Phillips translates it, they share a common humanity. Now, the original can mean from one man, literally. Perhaps it means Adam. He is the one from whom we're all descended. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live upon the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. And there's no doubt that Jesus comes into the world, and He comes into the world to be the second Adam. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. And He comes to, do, to undo what Adam did. He comes to undo Adam's disobedience. He comes to undo the death that was a consequence of Adam's disobedience. He comes to act for us. And that may be the principal and primary idea that is lying here. But, but it's, it's even more than that, I think. It's that. It's certainly that. But we can look at it from a, a number of angles. John Gill, one of the old commentators, puts it like this, both the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, the Son and the sons of God, the children of God, both are of one God and Father. Christ can say, speak about my God and your God, my Father and your Father. Those are different relationships, but they are the same God. We can think of Christ the head of one body, and we are the members of that body. There's one covenant or contract Christ is the guarantor and the mediator and the messenger of that contract, and ours are, are the blessings and the promises that are inherent in it. And supremely, there is one man, Adam, and Christ is the son of Adam, who comes to act on our behalf, who has the same nature. We are all of one blood, and He took part of the same flesh and blood with us. Now, it's because of His solidarity with us, His humanity, the flesh and blood that He took on, that we have this 
amazing link with our Savior. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's remarkable. Because this one who's standing in flesh and blood before you in the Scripture here, this Jesus of Nazareth, is the Lord of glory. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, and He's sustaining everything by His powerful Word. Even as He's standing there on Pilate's judgment hall, He is at the same time God the Son holding everything together, the glue of the universe. And yet here He is, in our flesh, and in our flesh to such a degree that it says at the end of verse 11, that is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Why? Because He has taken our human flesh. He has totally identified Himself with us. The tearing of His flesh, the outpouring of His blood is the very basis of our salvation. And though He has every cause to be ashamed of us, and every cause to abandon us over to judgment, because we justly deserve it. He has, in fact, abased Himself, lowered Himself, humbled Himself, so that we might be raised with Him in glory. Christ is our brother, our elder brother. He is a friend to us. He is part of our nature. We will never understand His deity or comprehend His deity, but we will always be able to comprehend with our minds His humanity. There is a man in heaven, the man Christ Jesus, who is the very image of the invisible God. And He is one with us, solidarity. And then the author, as he goes on now, supplies some evidence for his suitability to be our Savior, and that is based on these quotations now that he draws to our attention. He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and then he quotes from Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, I want you to notice what the writer is doing here. He is quoting Psalm 22 as being the words of Jesus. Now, why would he look there? He would look there because Jesus had drawn attention to that psalm while He was on the cross. You may remember that while He was on the cross, there was darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And uh, at the ninth hour, about three o'clock, Jesus calls out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And like every other rabbi, he would expect you then to look up Psalm 22. That's what he wants you to do. That's why Matthew puts it in there in Matthew 27. He wants you to look up what it was that Jesus wanted us to see in that psalm. And what you read as you go to that psalm and begin to read after that, that's the very first, the very first line of the psalm. 
as you read it. It begins to unfold before your eyes. I remember when I was, when I was uh, young, about a century ago, and uh, I'm aging well, uh, and reading some of the popular writers of that period, I remember reading some of the popular theologians of that period, and they were saying things like this. When Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Here we need to see that Jesus on the cross had lost his way. He'd lost his way. He'd lost God. He's now doubting his mission. It's as if everything has evaporated. But you see, the knowledge we have now that it is the rabbinical method, and indeed here we find in Hebrews that rabbinical method being demonstrated to us, what Jesus wants us to do is, want to understand what's going on, then you read the rest of the psalm. He did it not at any point, at any point in His humanity, cease to be a believer in God. As you read from verse 2, He looks to God for help. He is entirely trusting in God's love and God's power. From my mother's womb you've been my God, He says. There is no hint, not one, of disillusionment or distrust. He knows he's been abandoned to death, but he's not been abandoned by his father. He's been given over to death, but he has not been left alone by his father. That makes it all the more poignant. Here is the Lord's anointed, exposed to the scorn and the mockeries of those who are standing by watching him. He says in the psalm, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads in glee as they see me suffering. The words of verse 8 of that psalm are actually reproduced verbatim on the lips of people standing by round the cross. He trusted in God that He would deliver him. Let Him deliver him if He delight in Him. That's Handel's version. You see, Psalm 22 is the Holy Spirit's script for the drama of the cross. And the references in that psalm are graphic. The bones of His hands and arms and shoulder and pelvis are all out of joint, as you could imagine, from a crucified victim. The profuse perspiration caused by intense suffering. The action of the heart affected, in verse 14, strength exhausted, extreme thirst due to blood loss. The hands and the feet pierced. The partial nudity with the hurt to modesty are all associated with crucifixion. When David's writing, it's about 700 years before crucifixion as a form of execution was in common use. And in verse 14, the word poured out like water, language similar to what Paul the Apostle uses of Christ in Philippians about His being poured out in death. There's even a reference in the psalm to those standing around from His vantage point, those who are sitting around me are gambling, gambling, casting lots for my own clothing. You are having a Jesus-eye view of the circumstances of the cross there in Psalm 22. 
And then, as you read the psalm, suddenly, dramatically, the mood shifts. In verse 21 of the psalm, suddenly, out of the blue, but you have rescued me. Now he's speaking not from the cross. Now he's speaking post-resurrection. You rescued me. You heard me, literally. And then the words that are quoted here in Hebrews 2 verse 12, found in Psalm 22 verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the church, I will sing your praises. Here is, here is the suffering Savior now, uh, raised from the dead, now exalted, now looking around at the church, the assembly, the word is ecclesia or ecclesia, which means the church. He looks himself, uh, looks around at this church that he has purchased by his own suffering and blood, and he joins them. He says, in their midst, in the church, I will praise your name. I will declare your name. I will testify to your rescuing power by exalting your name. He is bringing glory to God the Father through the praises of His human brothers and sisters, His human family. And He is saying to the Father that He is leading the singing, He is leading the praises of the assembly of the church. And he is publicly guiding His people to direct their praises to the resurrecting, exalting, glorified Father in heaven. Here is the Lord Jesus leading the church in its worship. And by the way, there's a great insight here into the worship of the church that as we gather to God our praises are led by the Son of God. We have a worship leader in this church, but He's not on the platform. He's in heaven, and He orchestrates the praises of God's people and directs them by the Spirit towards the Father. He is our great worship leader, and we're told here that He sings along with us. You want to know what He's doing while we're singing in church? The praises of God, He's singing along with us. Only he's singing in key. <laughs> he is our worship leader. And as you read, as you read on in the psalm, you find that there are many of these brothers and sisters being gathered the, to, into the church. There's a posterity. There's a coming generation. There are people yet unborn, and they're going to be gathered into this church. This is the anointed king to whom God has given the nations as his inheritance. Whenever or wherever the church meets, we meet in the presence of God and we meet in the presence of Christ, who in heaven is orchestrating, leading our praises by the Holy Spirit in our hearts, by His holy apostles and prophets through His Word, by His appointed ministers in the church, as we proclaim to one another the love and grace and goodness and mercy of God in our mediator, and the peace, hope, and joy that comes to those who rest in Him, trust in Him, and know of His acceptance of them. Here is Jesus then, telling the good news, singing the praises of God in the congregation of His people. 
And then there are two more quotations here in verse 13. They come from Isaiah 8. And once again, we find the voice of Jesus in the prophecy of Isaiah. Matthew Bates, professor at Quincy University, argues that Isaiah, as a prophet, slips into the character of the Messiah, Jesus the Son, and that as such, he's issuing a warning to the people of Isaiah's day. And that's the context. Those who sit in Jerusalem, the house of Jacob, he tells them there are going to be in the future signs and portents, and they must interpret them rightly. It's a warning to the people from Isaiah to the people of Jesus' own day. And Isaiah speaks words of Jesus spoken in the future, which speak about something in the even more distant future, so that anyone who went to hear Isaiah speaking would understand, one, that he was speaking in the guise of some future character, who in turn was speaking about activities that were future to him. Get that? And if you look at the context in which those words are placed in Isaiah, they come between chapter 7 and chapter 9. In chapter 7, there is the clear messianic promise of one that will be born of a virgin and, and will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And in chapter 9, that one will be called, that coming son will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the nearer context of the words is the warning to treat the Lord, that is the triune Lord, as holy, lest they encounter the triune Lord to be a stone of offense over which they trip to their destruction. That language is used of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. And it's a warning. Isaiah 8 is a warning to the people of Jesus' own day who have sealed themselves up so that they might not learn the law of Moses. The people of Jesus' day, you remember the Pharisees, they have so, they have so kind of got the law of Moses so tied up in their heads that they don't see the law of Moses anymore. They've kind of bundled it around with all other kinds of rules and regulations that the spirit as well as the heart of the law is unknown, so much so that they will kill the Lord of glory. They will kill the Lord of glory. And so you hear the words of Jesus in the voice of Isaiah. I will trust in you. Though they don't listen, though they've sealed their minds so they will not learn, though they're, they're stirring up intense op opposition and hostility against me, I will trust in you. Here is the humanity of the Son, trusting in His Father. And then again it says, there in the last section, Behold, I and the children God has given to me. Here He is now exalted. Here are His words from His risen and exalted state. Here I am, these are our words to the church today. Here I am, and the children God has given to me. Uh, let me speak those words of Jesus to this congregation here this morning, here in this building and watching us by webcast. Here is the Lord Jesus speaking now in His state of exaltation to us. Here I am, 
and the children that God has given to me. They are a sign to you. Signs and portents, Isaiah said, they are a sign to you of what I have come into the world to do, to set apart a people for myself. I want you to notice that this family, this family, these children now are, have new boundaries. Not just Israel alone anymore. Jews and Gentiles. People from all the nations. People from every part of the world. All together, brothers and sisters, in my family, here I am and the children God has given me. Here is Jesus Himself as the eternal Son in human flesh, speaking through David and Isaiah, speaking in His state of humiliation, and now speaking in His state of exaltation as our mediator and Savior. And in His present exaltation in the midst of the church, praising God for having given Him these people. You ever think of that? Jesus is not only not ashamed to identify with us in our humanity. He is praising God that you know God, that you have come to know God, that God has given you to Him. It is for you He prayed. Father, I pray for those that you have given me. I pray not for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours and you have given them to me. Here I am and the children. God has given me. He takes such delight in you. He takes such delight in you, His people. Isn't that remarkable? There's a sense in which, if you grasp this, there is nothing low and demeaning anybody can ever do to you because the most significant person in all created reality, the man Christ Jesus, is not ashamed to be called your brother. He praises His Father for you. You mean everything to Him. He has the scars to prove it. He has set His love upon you. He has set you apart from the world for His own possession. And this explains why it is that we sometimes feel very disjointed in the world. John, the Apostle John, in one of his letters, puts it like this. Now we are the children of God but it does not yet appear what we shall be. People look at us, they don't see us as any different from them. We wear the same clothes, eat the same food, go the same places. There's nothing you can see from the outside. It does not yet appear what we shall be. We'll die like they will. But John goes on to say, but when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see Him as He is. I want you to leave this morning with this, that tomorrow when you're back down to washing the dishes, having your shower, walking to work, 
getting the train, driving your car, getting hassled, getting the kids out to school, all the things you hate to do. Tomorrow morning, don't forget, don't forget to have this vision of heaven and glory and of what you are to Christ. Let that raise your sense of worth. Let that be your sense of worth, that He is mine and I am His. Let's pray. What a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, but not, but not, more than in Christ more than simply the quintessence of dust. Children of God, adopted sons and daughters, heirs of glory, with an inheritance that is undefiled, reserved in heaven for us. Keep that hope alive in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' strong name, amen.